We're now going to have our reading, which is found in Matthew, we're on chapter 26. So if you have one of these church Bibles, that's on page 995. So we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1 and go into verse 16. So page 995. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Well, do have a seat. And if you've got a Bible, keep it open at Matthew 26 and those verses Emily just read for us. Uh, We're going to have a look at them now and try and think about this question. How much is Jesus Christ worth to you? I suppose some of that might depend on how much you think a human life is worth. So how much is a human life worth? Uh, Some of you might say, well, a human life is obviously priceless. If like Simon and Ruth or John and Amy, you've just had a new little baby, well, then you might really feel that as you hold new life in your hands. Or if you've lost someone dear to you, someone that you love, as we know our Queen has recently, well, then that life seems priceless. That person is irreplaceable. All they brought into this world, all that they were, all that they they meant to us, is then lost. And we see that life as a priceless, precious thing. But there are other ways of calculating the price of a human life. So governments have to do it when they're working out projects. Do you know how much the government thinks you're worth? You're about to feel good about yourself. So, hold on. The government, when they're making calculations, calculate your life as being worth 1.8 million pounds. Look around this room. We've got kind of tens of millions of pounds worth of talent scattered everywhere. So please be careful of the person sat next to you. You probably can't afford to replace them. 1.8 million. Feeling good? But there's another way. If scientists could break you down into your component parts, if they break you down into the oxygen and the 
carbon and the nitrogen and the phosphorus and uh, whatever else, calcium, the things that make up you, that's not such great news. The actual physical components of you roughly would work out about 700 pounds or actually less than a top-of-the-range iPhone. So I don't know if that makes you feel better or worse about yourself, but that's where that would be on that scale. But there's one more, and I think this is probably the most shocking of the lot. We tend, when we think of slavery, to think about the transatlantic slave trade, which obviously came to an end many years ago. But actually, slavery continues in this world to this day, and there are about 40 million slaves in the world today. About 70% are women, 25% are children, and the average slave trades for the equivalent of about 65 pounds. It is a shocking thing to think you can put a value on human life in that way. Today we're going to be thinking about the value that one of Jesus' disciples placed on him. It's right there in the passage that we read today. Did you see it? Verse 14, then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. That was an acceptable value to Judas for Jesus. It was about four months' wages, maybe the equivalent of 10 grand in our culture, 10,000 pounds was what it took for Judas to betray his friend and hand him over. But as we think today, the bigger question isn't what was Jesus worth to Judas, but what is Jesus Christ worth to you? What place does he have in your life? What place does he have in your heart? And to do that, we're going to see three contrasting stories that we've just had read to us. They're almost like a, a burger or a sandwich. So uh, for those who are already feeling hungry for lunch, uh, this isn't going to help. Uh, so there's, there's a burger there. And at the outside, the bread parts are like hate, and the middle part is love. So we're going to see the hatred of the religious authorities towards Jesus, then the love of a woman who knew him well and felt as if she owed Jesus everything and then the hatred of one of his own friends, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So let's begin with those first five verses again. We'll read them again. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, we've been working through Jesus' teachings, but the time for talk has finished. Jesus doesn't say much in the chapters that follow. He's delivered five great blocks of teaching in Matthew's gospel, one for each of the book's of the law in the Old Testament, but now his teaching is done. Chapter 25 marks the end. The time now is for action. The time now is for Jesus to go all the way for the cross, to the cross, and complete his mission. So when Jesus had finished saying all these things to his disciples, he said, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then we reach our first group of people who hated him. Then the chief priests and elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. 
So the first piece of our bread in the sandwich, the hate, is the hatred of the religious mafia in Jesus' day. Notice the Pharisees are mentioned here. The Pharisees were religious. These are the political guys. They're the guys with power. And Jesus threatened their power. They could see the crowds cheer him into Jerusalem and marvel at his answers in the temple. And they were jealous and they were concerned, we're told, that the Romans might come and take their power away if people followed Jesus as their king instead of Caesar. Ever since Jesus had raised Lazarus from the tomb, there were people who now said, he is the Messiah, and the time has come for our king to reign over us. And the religious authorities could not accept that that would happen. It threatened their place. The Romans loved stability. The Romans loved things to be calm and peaceful and structured. They loved stability like our American friends love freedom. It was their word, stability. They wanted calm. Well, Jesus was a threat to that peace and quiet and calm. And that's why they say they needed to arrest him. They want him dead, but they need to do it quietly, away from the crowds, so there won't be a riot. They're planning how they're going to capture him and take him out. You know, Jesus was a threat to their authority. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be the ones ruling the nation. They wanted to be the ones calling the shots. But Jesus is Lord. That's the most simple, basic confession of Christian faith. Jesus is Lord. He's in charge. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And if we're going to follow him, he has to have that place in our hearts and in our lives. And he threatens anyone who will not bow the knee to him and follow him. He takes away our self-sovereignty, our desire to rule our own lives our own way. You can't have life your own way and follow Jesus. He is Lord. He is King. Even today, he threatens people politically. We saw that recently. I don't know if you followed the story in the news where Sakir Starmer went and visited the Jesus house in London. Brothers and sisters of ours, people who share very similar views to us on all sorts of issues, doing a tremendous work in their local community in London as a vaccination center. What could possibly go wrong? And yet, a few days afterwards, he issued a full apology, the leader of the Labour Party, for visiting that church because he'd been put under pressure, because they hold to Jesus' view of sexuality and marriage, the same as we do in our network of churches, where we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman together for life, and all other sexual practice is immoral. That is Jesus' teaching on sexuality and marriage. Don't let anyone lie to you and tell you otherwise. I can show you clearly in Matthew's gospel where Jesus explains these things. Our brothers and sisters at the Jesus house believe the same as we do. And yet a few days after his visit, Sir Keir Starmer took down all the pictures and all the videos of him visiting that place and issued a full and frank public apology for associating with people who hold Jesus' view on sexuality and marriage. 
Jesus, you see, threatens political authority to this day. You can bow the knee to Jesus, but it will always be costly. And there'll be those who are willing to pay the cost and those who won't. But I don't want to point the finger today at Sakir Starmer. The finger points at us. The things that we hold dear. Here are the three most important things to us too. Our own power, our own right to choose how we live our lives our own way. Jesus says we have to bow the knee to him in the small and the large decisions of life and take and follow him as our king. It affects us in the area of money. So by nature, we are greedy. And by nature, we are selfish. And by nature, we use money for ourselves and our wants and what we want. And we often feel like we're doing a good thing if we give a small percentage over to Christian work, as if somehow that justifies us keeping the rest. Do you know what Jesus says? Be generous. He is looking for generosity. He cited a poor widow who put everything she had into the offering as an example as his disciples of what it means to really live for him in the area of money. And the final area for all of us is sex and sexuality. For all of us, Jesus calls us to a standard of purity we simply cannot keep. We all fall short. We all miss the mark. We all overstep the boundaries in some ways. We all need to repent. And we all need to follow him. And that is going to be costly in the age in which we live. Because what Jesus says about these things is so different to what most people today think. Things have changed very quickly. Some of you who are older here can remember before the 1960s. Basically, what Christians believe was what most people believe. Today, that isn't true. Here we are, 60 years further down the track, and many people believe completely the opposite. But God's word hasn't changed. Jesus' view of sex and sexuality will never change. And his way is what he calls us to stand up for and contend for in the world in which we live in a loving and kind and gracious way, but without giving one inch of ground. The challenges we face are nothing new. Roman society had the same thing. I read this week, which I didn't know and I still need to fact check, that Nero, the Roman emperor, was involved in a gay marriage. So I'm going to fact check that this week and you can too. So you see, nothing new exists under the sun. The challenges we face are very similar in many respects to the challenges of the first century when Jesus was alive and the early church was launched. And by standing firm on what they believed, the church grew and it prospered, although it was persecuted. They said, Jesus is Lord. And the celebrities in the first 250 years of the church were whom? Those who died for their faith. The celebrities in the church were not celebrity pastors. They were not celebrity worship leaders. They weren't even missionaries in the sense that we think of them. They were those who died defending the truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. But that was too much for these guys who wanted nothing from Jesus. He was worth nothing to them. But in sharp contrast, in the middle of our sandwich is love. The story of love. Read with me again these verses. 
While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When Jesus saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is a beautiful thing, as Jesus himself says. Jesus was in Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, at the home of Simon the leper. He obviously didn't have leprosy anymore, as no one would have been there. He's more the artist formerly known as Simon the leper. And some people speculate that he was Mary and Martha and Lazarus' dad. We don't know for certain. It was his home. What we do know from John's gospel is Mary and Martha and Lazarus were all there. Martha was serving at the table. Lazarus was sat, raised from the dead, having a meal with Jesus and some of the others. And that it's Mary, Lazarus's sister, who comes in, in the meal, while they're reclining at the table, eating, that's how they, how they ate, lying on kind of couches. And she comes in and does an amazing thing. She brings in a bottle, a flask of perfume. The neck is sealed with a bung. The only way to open it is to break the neck. A bit like if you've ever used a glow stick. You have to break it to make it work. Similar technique, except this is one expensive glow stick. When you break the neck, you expose about 30,000 pounds worth of perfume. This is almost certainly the most valuable thing this woman owned, and it's a one-time use. It was almost like a pension or an investment, something you could hang on to for a rainy day, something that gave you a bit of backup if things fell short. And in the middle of this meal, she comes in, she snaps off the neck of the flask, and she empties the whole lot over Jesus. And the disciples were appalled. What a waste. Couldn't this have been sold? This, this amazingly expensive item and the money given to the poor? After all, Jesus cares about the poor. He's just been teaching, saying, and as much as you do things for the least of these, you do them for me. They're sure Jesus is going to back them up that he's going to tell this woman how foolish she has been. What a waste. But Jesus sees something far more wonderful in her action, something worth celebrating. Aware of what they were saying, Jesus said to them, to these disciples, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus sees here her heart. He sees that it's full of love, that the devotion... By sacrificing this expensive gift, she has done something amazing for him. We tend to judge things by the outcome. How well did it go? Was it successful? Did I achieve what I set out to do? Here's the thing. Jesus judges things according to the love in our hearts. Even things that go wrong, even things that don't go as we intend, even things that, humanly speaking, look like a disaster, can still be valuable in his sight if they're done with love for him 
at the center. Love for him is the most important, most valuable, most beautiful thing in the whole universe. And it occurs in the most unexpected of places. I was reading a wonderful book last week. And in there was this story, just in the middle of a chapter, and I just loved it. It's about a Russian pastor who was arrested um, during the days of the Soviet Union. He was thrown in prison for running a house church. And every day for 15 years, he got out of bed in the morning, spread his arms out wide, and then sang his favorite hymn at the top of his voice in prison. I wonder what hymn would you choose? He called it his heart song, the one that made his heart sing. He was locked up with 1,500 other prisoners who all mocked him. But every day he got up and sang his heart song from the top of his voice for all to hear. After 15 years, he lost his faith. He signed a document saying he retracted his belief and faith in Jesus Christ. And then when the time came to actually hand it in and publicize it, he tore it and retracted it and instead wrote on a piece of paper Bible verses that he could remember and pinned them to a pillar in the prison. It was his final act. The guards had enough of him and decided to execute him for his faith in Jesus. As they took him out to be executed, 1,500 men stood up, and at the top of their voices, they sang his favorite hymn, his heart song. The guards were terrified. They asked this pastor, who are you? And he simply said this, I am Jesus in your midst. I am Jesus in your midst. I want to say this to you, brothers and sisters here at Headley Park Church here this morning, brothers and sisters watching at home, in your neighborhood, you are Jesus in the midst of the people whom you serve. In your workplace, you are Jesus to those people whom you mix with. In your family, you are Jesus to those people whom you mix with there too. You are to be like him and to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But there's a final twist to this tale, and it doesn't end here. But it simply says this, then one of the twelve, the one called Judas, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. We're going to come back to Judas again. But here's the thing for this morning. Jesus was worth something to Judas. He was worth 30 pieces of silver. Do you know how they settled on that price? Do you know why 30 pieces of silver? It was the compensation price for a slave. Do you remember in our world it was 65 pounds? For Judas it was a lot more than that. It was 10,000 pounds. But it was the price of compensating someone if you killed their slave. Judas should have seen 
the king. He was one of the king's men. It looked that way. He saw the miracles. He heard the wonderful teaching. He experienced the love of Jesus. Jesus even called him his friend. And yet in his heart of hearts, there was no love for Jesus at all. When the time came, he sold him out for the price of a slave. I wonder, we can be here this morning. We can be watching at home or catching up later. We can look as if we're good, upright Christian people. But in our heart of hearts, where is the love for Jesus? Where's the beauty of that woman in us? Where's the devotion, the sacrifice, the desire to let others know that he is worth more to us than anything that is precious in this world? He may be worth something to us, just as he was to Judas. But he needs to be worth everything to us. You see, at the end of this story, the main character isn't Judas. The main character isn't the woman. The main characters aren't the religious authorities. The main character is Jesus himself. What are you worth to him? Do you ever think about that? What are you worth to the king of kings? What are you worth to the creator of the universe? Did you see how this began? It begins with Jesus speaking to his disciples As you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing what would happen to him. He's not a victim here. This is God's plan. He goes to Jerusalem as our Passover lamb, as the one who will die to redeem and rescue us from our sins. And that's why the woman's act is so significant Why are you bothering this woman, Jesus says. She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. For burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The good news of the gospel is this. There is a God who loved you so much he left heaven to come to earth. He loved you so much that he grew up as one of us. He lived a life as a poor man. He lived as a servant of all. And then he served in the only way that he could. He served you all the way to the cross where he bled and he died for your sin and mine that we might be forgiven, that we might be cleansed, that we might be set free that we who fall short and overstep the mark and get so much wrong might be those who would be called friends of God and sons and daughters of the King of Kings. How much are you worth to Jesus? He gave everything to rescue and redeem you. The question is, the question is, what is he worth to you? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It cuts right into our hearts and lives. Lord, we know at times we fail you, we let you down. We treat you as if you're nothing, even when you've been so kind and so generous and so good to us. 
Oh, Father God, forgive us. For any here who have never turned to you in repentance and faith, for any watching at home who have never, never turned in their hearts, oh, Lord, I pray that even this morning, your Holy Spirit would be touching hearts and lives in this place and turning people to the first time to you. But Lord, for those of us who know you, we need to go through daily that process of dying to ourselves and living for Jesus. Forgive us when we still want to hold back from you, when we still want to live our own lives our own way. Lord, give grace to us that we might die to ourselves and live for Jesus and give our all for him and his kingdom. For we ask these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. We're going to stand in the building, and at home you can stand and sing, and we're going to have our final song today. When I survey the wondrous cross, let's stand together. Thank you.
Well, do be seated. Time this morning is nearly up. Um, we will break for a moment onto Zoom and have a time of communion for those that are able to stay and those that are able to join in at home. Uh, just a few notices this week. So tonight we are on Zoom. We're not back in the building, but on Zoom at 8 o'clock tonight. And Nathan Smith, who is a pastor in North Bristol, uh, um, Grace Church is going to be joining us. I don't actually know what he's doing. I've given him a completely free hand. So you'll be finding out with me what he's doing tonight. I said, do some, preach something you think will encourage us. That was my only guidance to him. So we'll see what he comes up with from that. So Nathan's going to be with us tonight. He's a really engaging and godly man. So if you're able to come this evening, please do. I'm sure it'll be a blessing to your soul. Tuesday night, we're back in our um, refresh group. So uh, again on Zoom. If you're not in a group but you would like to be in one, let us know and we can attach you to a group and give you the login details. And we're going to be talking about uh, that question of what is sin that Tim was helping us with this morning. How does that actually affect how we live and how can we actually learn to be those who put sin to death and live for Jesus? Thursday morning, our prayer meeting's at 9.15 and then uh, we'll be back together in this way next Sunday. So do get signed up with John if you haven't yet already. We can make sure there's space for people here or downstairs. Also to say, um, they've been mentioned already today, but the Dowlands are now home. Ruth is still recovering from uh, the C-section. Uh, so do give them some space. Simon's into his second week of paternity leave, but thankfully uh, we've also been able to find some sabbatical time for him. So he's going to be off until the end of May. So any questions, any pastoral matters in the church, please send my way this week and I'll pick up on those things. Uh, and also to say, do remember Carol, she's prayed for very helpfully by Emily today, Philip's funerals this week. Uh, I'm going to be taking that. So do pray for that. Um, these are sad times and not to be able to have everybody together they would like to be there uh, is a sad thing, isn't it? It's very poignant seeing the Queen yesterday all on her own. And I think people can feel very alone at these times. So do pray for Carol. Uh, as she uh, says goodbye to her Philip this week. Uh, we're going to pause there and then we're going to switch over to Zoom. So if you are able to join us at home, please do. We're going to be, be able to see you on the screen here this morning. It's tremendous encouragement to us when people do that thing. So we're going to take five minutes or so now uh, for people to switch over to Zoom.